less of a sermon and a little more of a prayer. And I don't know what that's going to look like, and I'm okay with that. Because church is not meant to be part concert, part TED Talk. Church is meant to be the family of God sitting around the dinner table asking dad, speak to us. So I don't know what's going to happen today. We might pause halfway through and just turn this into a prayer session or a jam session, or we might go all the way through the sermon. I don't know, but I do know that if we will open up our hearts, God will speak to us here. And if Jesus is here, anything can happen, yeah? So question, what is the heart of Paul's prayer for us? Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts. And what's that mean? for Christ to dwell in our hearts. How does that happen? What happens before that happens? What happens after that happens? I remember as a kid being in kids' church and uh, making that decision. Some of you guys probably had a similar experience. They said, you want to invite Jesus Christ to dwell in your heart? And I went down, and I, and I did. And I, I remember receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the name of Jesus and, and imagining, man, this is so cool. I've got like G.I. Joe-sized Jesus dwelling right here in my heart. And if the devil comes knocking, G.I. Joe Jesus has kung fu grip, and he's ready to defeat the devil, right? So that was, that's six-year-old me. That's Gavin, like however many years ago that was. I'm not going to do math. I'm preaching a sermon. So I imagined that. I imagined what it could look like to have the power of God. By the way, power is a word Paul uses three times in this prayer. And I imagine, what would it be like to have the power of God, to, to be able to heal people and walk on water and, and calm the waves and the storm with your word? That would be amazing. I would love to raise somebody from the dead. That would be super cool. So I was imagining this stuff, and I was praying, God, I was praying with passion and believing that anything could happen. So like every night before I go to bed, God, help Aunt Vanjie to come back to church. And Aunt Vanjie came back to church. And I remember, God, help Aunt Paula to get married because she's so sad. And Aunt Paula got married. And then I remember one time our dog, Trixie, little chocolate poodle, went running out into the street, got hit by a car. My mom comes in the house crying, sobbing. Trixie's dead. I run out there. Imagine, like Gavin, my seven-year-old, run out there, just pray for Jesus, bring Trixie back to life. Dude, she jumped up and ran back in the house as God is my witness. And I was like, <laughs> I remember we were praying for like God to do crazy stuff in the church, like do miracles, do healings, signs, wonders, God, because you know, I grew up Pentecostals. Ah! Attack hell with a water pistol, you know? So I remember I was praying that God would move in crazy ways, and, and there was this lady in our church named Sister Shulak. Sister Shulak used to have an oxygen tank, and uh, she had the tracheal tube, and she would, she would walk around with it and kind of wheeze, and if she had to walk too far, she went to the trunk of her car and pulled out the big oxygen tank, switched it out, and then she'd go walking. So we had never seen her move any faster than this, and all of a sudden, there's this church service. And the preacher, in the middle of a church service, just like this, the preacher says, you, God wants to heal you, lady, right now. Take that tube out of your throat. And we're all like. <laughs> <laughs> and she did. And I'm not going to describe the yellow 
stuff. But I will say, she took off running around the church. We never seen her move like that. The place went up in smoke. People are shouting and jumping. It was crazy. It was bananas. She died the next day. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't. <laughs> it's just me, man. Sorry. This is what you get today. I got no sermon. I'm just up here talking. No, God healed her. Miraculously, she lived another like 20 years. It's amazing. You're welcome. But as I grew, longing for the power, longing for the experience of God's presence, longing for all those things, I also grew in my uh, pursuit of ambitions and my appetites and people's approval. And I started getting caught up in all kinds of sin. I struggled with sin as a kid. I, I lied. I, I remember, you know, disobeying my parents. I remember stealing a Disney Adventures at the grocery store, but I, I was a hard nut to crack, and I didn't crack for at least two minutes. And then we were in the car driving home, and I break down in tears in the back seat. And my parents are like, why is he crying? I stole it. I stole it. You know, so that was me, the big sinner, Vince Larson, six years old, seven years old, eight years old. I remember going to youth group and them talking about this, this heart metaphor and how Jesus has come to dwell in our hearts. And that means that your heart is like a house. You guys heard this? Your heart's like a house. So you got to keep it clean for him. You wouldn't want Jesus living in a pigsty. So keep it clean. Don't, don't do stuff. If, look, if you're going to watch that movie, let me ask you, would Jesus watch that movie with you? You know, keep your house nice and clean. And I remember, oh, man, I got to got to really keep my heart clean. So I would go down on Sunday morning, and I would confess all my sins from the week, weeping hot tears. And then every Monday, those sins would come knocking at the heart's door again. And I remember doing things I shouldn't and saying and thinking and, 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 and seeing things I shouldn't. And I imagine Jesus saying, look, Vince, I love you, but your house is dirty. You never mow the lawn. You keep leaving the toilet seat up. And there's boxes instead of a bed here. I don't even have room to sleep in my room, man. Like, I'll come back when you create some space for me. Maybe then I'll, you know, come live here if you'll clean it up. Over the years, I imagined Jesus coming to visit and leaving soon after because things got dirty again. And the visits got shorter and shorter. And the distance between those visits got longer and longer. And after a while, I felt so tired of cleaning. And I, I, I just like, oh, man, I'm so worn down by my inability to keep things tidy that I felt so distant from him, so distant from his love. And I remember just like giving up. Because that kind of religious life is so exhausting. Trying to please someone who to you seems impossible to please. Soul crushing. Maybe some of you guys can relate. So this week as I read that phrase that Jesus Christ might dwell in your heart, if I'm honest with you, I felt a little bit of like a religious PTSD. Ah. What's that mean? And yet, Paul doesn't seem to be struggling under any kind of weights or burden when he says that. And Paul seems really free. Paul seems to be bubbling over. He's just written three of the thickest theological chapters in Scripture. He's about to jive into two of the, or, or a few of the most practical chapters in Scripture. And right here, in the middle of it, he pauses and he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts. But what does Paul know that we might be missing? Why is he so passionate? Why, why, when Paul writes this, is he so full of life and love? We're going to discover that. And, and warning, it might be contagious, okay? 
So as we get into it today, I, I want to ask you, where are you at? Because if you're tired today, if you feel distant from God today, if you feel overwhelmed with sins and addictions and negative emotions, or if you feel like your faith has just become dry or repetitious or humdrum, this is for you. If you've never believed the gospel yet, or maybe you get it intellectually, but you've never opted in yet, this is for you too. So let's dive in today, and we're just going to walk through the passage and see what God's going to do. Verse 14, for this reason. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles right down here. We also, thanks to Kirsty and David and some of their hard work, have a cry room for the ladies right through this door with a live stream. So if anybody wants to go check it out, you're welcome to, specifically if you have a baby. It's... Verse 13, for this reason. Now, back at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said the same thing. He said, for this reason. And then Paul has a moment where he interrupts himself and gets distracted and goes on a diatribe for 13 verses. It's like that moment in Up where the dog's like, squirrel. You know, that's what Paul does in this chapter. But now he comes back to this prayer. So when you say, for this reason, Paul's not just talking about what Kenny preached about last week, although he's referencing that too. He's actually talking about what he started talking about at the beginning of chapter 3, which is all of the book of Ephesians. The whole theological premise he's been building in this entire series that we've been exploring. Okay, So Paul's been saying all this stuff. He's been saying salvation is God's work from start to finish. That apart from God's work, we're hopeless. We're dead in sin. We're headed for wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. And Paul's been saying all this stuff over and over. And it's like in this moment, it just finally starts hitting him. And it's like he starts having a praise break. You guys ever heard of a praise break? No, you had to grow up Pentecostal for those. Those are, that's when you just like right in the middle of it, the music starts going, the drums and the organ, you just start dancing. <laughs> Good days. And you can understand that, right? I mean, when you read the first couple of chapters of Ephesians and you reflect on the Father's grace for you in calling you, in adopting you, in redeeming you, forgiving you through Christ, sealing you with the Holy Spirit, raising you up together with Christ, seating you in heavenly places with Christ, making you new in Christ, bringing you into Christ's own family, when you start reflecting on that and letting it hit you right here in the heart, it'll start to do the same thing that it does to Paul. Paul is so stunned, so overwhelmed with this truth, he can't contain himself. He actually starts making up words. Making up, there's, there's words that don't exist in the Greek language and sentence structures that don't make sense. And Paul just can't contain himself, so he's just lumping stuff together and heaping adjectives on adjectives in this prayer because he's praying from his guts. Praying from his heart. In other words, Paul is losing his mind. And he's beginning to pray from some other place deep within his heart. And guys, I want to encourage you, as we dive into this today, I want to encourage you to join him in that. Can we allow ourselves to let go a little bit today? Here's what I mean. Can we begin to engage this passage, not just with our heads, but with our not just with our perceptions, but with our affections. Can we feel Paul's heart in this? 
Imagine he's praying this for you and for us. And for this reason, he says, verse 14, I kneel before the Father. Listen, kneel is not, it's not just like a, a, an idiom, you know, uh, I kneel in prayer before you. He's not just saying, I pray for you. Paul's literally getting down on his knees. The elderly man who's given his life for the gospel, who's in chains in prison, is climbing down onto his knobby knees to pray for the church. It's supposed to elicit emotion in you when you think about that. He says, I kneel before the Father. I mean, just imagine you were in court. You're a defendant, and you got to call forth a witness. And in walks Paul, somebody of his caliber and character, to bear witness and plead your case. And he gets out in front of the whole court, and he gets down on his knees, and he begins to plead for you and intercede for you. What's that do to your heart? Right? And that's, that's what he says. I, I get down on my knees for you. And just that image for a second. Who's he getting down in front of? The judge of all the earth. The God of the universe. He's kneeling in awe and wonder. This week, Tyson and I got together to pray on Wednesday morning, and we were talking about postures of prayer and how we can come to God. And I was like, man, I know Paul says in this passage that he kneels before God, and there's other places where he says he strolls boldly into the throne room of grace, that we can do that to obtain mercy in our time of need. And I thought, man, sometimes I walk into God's throne room boldly, but like flippantly. You guys ever do that? Like I've had a really good week and I've really nailed it for God this week because it's all about my work, not Ephesians 1 through 3 and God's work for me. It's all about what I've done for him. So I'm walking in, I'm like, hey, dad, uh, got some favors to call in. Um, I need... <laughs> Anybody ever pray like that? Or on a bad week, when again, it's all about your work, not his, and you just totally avoid the throne room? But gospel-centered events in my best weeks sometimes, I can get down on my knees in awe and wonder that the God of the universe listens to my prayer, calls me son. I, I know my past. I know the junk in my life, and he listens. He doesn't refuse me. As self-centered and self-serving and short-sighted as some of my requests can be, he doesn't turn me away. He loves me. He rejoices over me. That's the father we serve. That's the father we get to talk to. I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Real quick. Uh, the, the Greek word there, father, family, Pater and, and pater, uh, patria. I'm not Greek. I don't speak it fluently. Um, it's derivative language. Well, essentially, it's Paul's way of saying that we come from God. And Paul, in context, has been saying that the Jews and the Gentiles are families that are part of, are, are part of God's creation, but they both come from God, and they've been united into one family. Right? That's what he's been saying. And he's going to spend time in the next chapter talking about the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to be a united church, unity in diversity. He's going to spend time in that. But right now, he's not trying to delve into the theology of it. He's just pausing and rejoicing and praying and celebrating this truth. He's, he's giving time for us to reflect on it, for it to seek down into our hearts. In this moment, he's moving from his head to his heart. My cousin Jeff was talking to a rabbi up in Berkeley, and the rabbi said, 
Westernized learning is very different from Easternized learning in the rabbinical traditions because in Westernized learning, what you tend to do is you think new information means you know new things. But we don't believe you know new things because you learn new information. You know new things by experiencing that truth, by taking time to reflect upon it. And that's true. Paul is, he's, he's in a transition of moving from theology in the head to practical, uh, practicality and pragmatism and, and the hands of what we do, but he pauses right in the middle to engage the heart. He doesn't just jump straight from the hands to the heart. There's this old quote from G.K. Chesterton. And I love G.K. Chesterton. I do disagree with this quote, but I'm going to bring it up because I think it makes an important point, especially for churches like ours that have a theologically rich heritage and tradition. G.K. Chesterton says, orthodoxy begets orthopraxy, right? In other words, if you have the right beliefs, you'll start living the right practices of the right life. And is that true? I, thank you. In my experience, here's why it's not true. Or maybe it's just an oversimplified truth. Because there's a lot of Christians who seem to know their Bible backward and forward and live like the devil. And they're full of pride and they're full of bigotry and hatred. So what's the disconnect there? They do not believe it. That's right. Good theology is not good enough. The devil has great theology. If you let that sink, you got to let the truth sink down into the soil of your heart and take root if it's ever going to bear fruit in your life. You have to experience it. You have to reflect upon it. You have to let yourself Go there emotionally. Yeah. And it's really hard in churches like ours where we love to engage with our mind, but we kind of shut our hearts down if we're not careful. If it's truth about God, it, it should be <laughs> leading to heartfelt worship, emotional engagement, laughter, tears, surprise, amazement, love, gratitude, the full spectrum of your human emotion. When you engage the word of God, is that what you experience? If not, why not? Because our hearts aren't being engaged. And this is a worn out example, but I'm going to use it because the Super Bowl is just a few days ago. In the Super Bowl, you pan the crowd, and what are people doing? You're going nuts. The Super Bowl? And pan the crowd. When you pan the crowd with the camera, just like this. When you pan the crowd, right? They're going crazy. Some people are crying, they're cheering, they're rejoicing, they're doing all this stuff. Over what? Over some guys in leotards throwing a pigskin over painted lines. Leotards, I don't know, what are they called? Tights? Spandex? All spandex. If we can go emotionally crazy over that, how much more? Can we respond and engage emotionally when we think about the God of the universe speaking to us, revealing himself to us? Christianity was never meant to be something that engages just part of you, but your whole being. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just with your mind, not just with your strength, with your heart and your soul. And that's what Paul's talking about here, your innermost being. Don't get me wrong, we need orthodoxy. If you don't have orthodoxy, you're not going to receive God on his terms as he's revealed himself, and you're going to create a God in your own image. 
And we need orthopraxy because if you don't have orthopraxy, you're going to be like the people James is talking to that are all talk and no walk. Faith without works, and it's dead. You need orthodoxy, you need orthopraxy, but you've got to have orthopathy, the right heart. The right heart. If you don't have the right heart, you can say or do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. My way of saying it, if I could humbly offer correction to the marvelous G.K. Chesterton, I would say orthodoxy plus orthopathy equals orthopraxy. Right beliefs with the right heart will actually lead to the right practices. But how do we get the right heart? How do we get orthopathy? Uh, you guys hear this saying? Some of the teenagers, some, I never thought I would say that. I'm so old now. Some of the teenagers are saying these days, I'm just in my feelings. You hear that? She's in her feelings. That's what it means. It means to get that truth down in your feelings, to feel it. You have to experience it. You have to let it inform your head, and then you have to let it get down and transform your heart. Yeah, it has to affect your emotional life. Then you'll find yourself experiencing it, and you'll begin living like it's true. You'll be conformed to the image of Christ. Why does Paul pause and pray here? Why does he climb down upon his knees before the Father? And pray for us. What does he pray for? Look at verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. How would you like to have more power? If you could have more power for anything, what would you have it for? Would you use it to control things that are out of your situations? So, or out of your, uh, out of your ability to control? Maybe, maybe people who have the power to hire or fire you? Control people who have the ability to love or leave you? Like, what would you use power for if you could have more of it? Think about all the things people use power for. More money, more prestige, more whatever. Some people use it for good, more help for other people. When I was 10, I would have used it to walk on water. If I could have the power of God, this is all I care about right now. (laughs) What would you use power for? Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power in our innermost being. Why? 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays for power to strengthen you and I towards one end, that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And that's confusing, isn't it? Because Paul's writing to Christians. I thought Christ already dwelled in their hearts. Isn't God already there? And that brings me back to younger me, tired from cleaning my heart up so that God would have a nice, clean place to live, burdened by religion, exhausted. I remember actually a point where I gave up on God. I walked away. I backslid. You guys remember that term? What does that term mean? Anyway, we don't use that term in anything, in any other context. It's it's a weird term. Does it mean like sliding down the slide on your back? (laughs) Sorry. You've heard me share my story. I won't, I won't share it, I won't belabor the point, but how I left church, how I uh, started drinking like a fish, how I almost killed myself with cheap Albertson's vodka one Sunday afternoon and, and uh, passed out on the couch and almost died of alcohol poisoning, and how I came back to church the next Sunday with my head bowed and my tail tucked between my legs. And I found out something that even though I gave up on God. He'd never given up on me. I thought I was walking away, but you, you can't walk away from a God who fills space and time. 
And you can't walk away from a God who dwells right here in your heart. And I found out something. I found out he was still there. I thought I'd left. He never left me. When I got to my lowest point, he was right there. When I came back with my tail tucked full of guilt and shame and fear, he was right there. As I began learning more about what scripture has to say, I began to realize that much of what I'd come to believe about my relationship with God was off. This may come to a shock, come as a shock to some of you, but Jesus Christ is not a G.I. Joe-sized tenant in the bloody organ pumping in your chest. That's not what this passage is getting at. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the creator of space and time, the incarnate king, the his presence fills the universe. Jesus is God, and he wants to dwell in your hearts. By, by the way, this is the only place in Scripture that that phrase shows up. We use it a lot in Christianity. This is the only place it's found. And it's an awesome phrase, but it doesn't mean what many people have come to believe it means. It, it doesn't mean less than our hearts being a location for Jesus to dwell, but it does mean a lot more. And we discover that by, by understanding this verse in the context of the surrounding verses in the book of Ephesians and the whole scripture of God because God doesn't contradict himself. And when you read all the scripture and you understand this verse in it, like how could I square that verse if that's what it meant that he came to dwell in the hearts of Christians and that he would walk in and out, that he was a small-minded bookkeeper who would erase their name out of the book of life every time they sinned with a pencil and then write it back in when they repented. How could I square that version of God with verses like where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or just take what he said so far in Ephesians. I'm going to read three verses real quick. Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Chapter 2, verse 4. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Chosen, adopted, predestined to be holy and blameless, seated right now in heavenly places in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. You can't lose it. Where'd my salvation go? Has anybody seen my salvation? That's not how it goes. When you sin, the all-knowing God of the universe is not shocked. When you fill your heart with other passions, he's not running out of the room, just bent out of shape or abandoning you because you're not ready to host him in your, in your heart house. He's made your heart his permanent dwelling place, and he's right there, right now, cleaning you up from within. On your worst day, He's right there with you, loving you as you are, right there in your brokenness, reshaping you into the image of Christ. Some of you need to hear me right now. Your momentary reality might be full of sin, but your eternal reality is that you're saved to the utmost. You may be sitting in a pile of self-indulgence or self-deprivation, but Jesus says you're seated in heavenly places in Christ. You may feel like the prodigal son and say, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, but the scripture says, beloved, we are now children of God. And it doesn't even appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How? 
I keep screwing up. I keep messing up. And Paul says, he's been saying it for three chapters, your salvation is not dependent upon your work. It's dependent on his. And on your worst day, he's not abandoning you. He's holding you close and giving you more grace. God is at work saving you, and he always finishes what he started. I just want to pause there and ask you, are you allowing yourself to be shocked by that truth? Like, are you letting that truth hit you in the heart right now, that the God of the universe has taken up residence in your heart? It's like Aladdin, right? The genie. Phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty with his face. God is everywhere and he's within you. Right? But what does it mean that he's dwelling in your heart? Well, we said it doesn't mean less than your heart being a location, but it does mean a whole lot more. What else does it mean? And Christ may dwell in your hearts. It's not so much about our heart's location as it is about our heart's affection. I want to read this from Sam Storms. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it'll explain what I'm trying to put into words here. Paul prays for several things here, all of which pertain to our sensible experience of the person of Christ. He prays that we might be internally strengthened by the power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. But how can that be if we've already received Christ in our hearts when we were born again? The only viable explanation is that Paul is referring to an experiential enlargement of what's already theologically true. He wants us to be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ may exert progressively greater and more intense influence, personal influence in our souls. The result of this expansion of the divine power and presence in our hearts is the ability to grasp how wide and, and long and high and deep Christ's love for us really is. This is Paul's way of saying that God intends for us to feel and experience and be emotionally moved by the passionate affection he has for us, his children. In other words, Paul is not praying that Christ would come into our hearts. He already has. Paul is praying that our affections for that truth would swell in our hearts, that our awareness of his presence would grow, that our experience of his love for us in Christ would multiply, that our affections for God would begin to overflow in our lives. In other words, this profound truth that Paul is, is grasping at words and he can't even put together, he, he, it, it can't just stay in our head. It has to start there, but it, it can't stop there. It has to keep going down into our hearts and souls and innermost being. One more, D.A. Carson says it this way. This cannot be merely an intellectual exercise. Paul is not asking that his readers might become more articulate or more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with the intellect alone, how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He is asking God that they might have power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Paul goes on to say that this love surpasses knowledge. It's a love that's unknowable and, and it's explainable to a degree, and yet it must be experienced if you want to truly know it. Why don't we experience it more? I think there's two pitfalls when it comes to experience in the church. One is abuse, and the other one is avoidance. I'm just going to talk about those real quick, because I think we need to do a little, just a teaching moment on that. There are some who base too much stuff on experience. They don't filter their experiences of the spiritual through God's word. And that leads to all kinds of problems. Mysticism, heresy, it's dangerous. God's revelation is primary, and we're supposed to seek 
to, to understand our experience through the lens of Scripture, which alone is perfect. Our experience is not, it's got to match up with Scripture, amen? Five of you with me. Cool. I'll keep going. <laughs> Avoidance. There are others of us who are so afraid of the abuses of the experience and the work of the Spirit that we have our own problem. And that is we just avoid the Spirit and we avoid those experiences altogether. And we end up with a cold, dead, dry orthodoxy as a result. And Paul shows us what we need here. He spent three chapters unpacking God's truth. And now he says that he wants us to know it and to experience it. God's salvation, God's power, God's love are to be known and experienced. Let's keep going. He keeps praying. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, love that double metaphor, right? Being rooted in Christ's love, being established, founded on Christ's love. I pray that you being rooted and established may have power, power again. Power for what? That you together with all God's people. I just want to pause there and say the context for this is community. Yeah, like this chapter is, is super intimate and personal. And at the same time, it's extremely communal. Right? You see that tension in the chapter? It talks about power through the Spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in your heart, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But then it's communal because he talks about the family in all of heaven and earth and, and together with all of God's holy people. And in the last verse 21, he says, glory to God in the church. In other words, our experience of Christ's love is personal, but it's not private, right? And Paul's prayer for us, that's what we're talking about with a global church. We're, we're just part of the church of San Diego, capital C church, which is just part of the church of the world, which is just part of the historical church. It's personal, but it's not private. And Paul's prayer for us is that in community, we would experience God's power for what? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to, all the, to the measure of all the fullness of God. That word know in verse 19, Kenny pointed this out a couple weeks ago. That word is gnosko. It doesn't just mean to know like intellectual assent. It means to know something deeply, personally, intimately, experientially. It's like when the Bible says, uh, and so-and-so knew their wife. Hey, they got to know her, Right? Very, very personal, intimate knowledge. That's, that's what this is talking about, to know this love. So Paul pauses and prays in the middle of his magnum opus, and he stops, and he crawls down on his knees before the Father, and he addresses the God of the universe on our behalf. And three times he asks that we would have power. Why? So that we individually and communally would have enough faith and enough strength to know something that he says is unknowable the love of God for us in Christ. How wide, how deep, how long, and how, how high is his love. And Paul's just like going out of his mind trying to explain it. But consider what he's saying. He's saying that the infinite God of love, beyond what you can imagine, wants you to know intimately and deeply and personally how loved you are and wants you to experience the inexhaustible dimensions of his love. Listen, you can spend eternity trying to scratch the surface of his love, and I want to recommend it. I want to recommend it. Like, scratch the surface. 
Try to understand. That's what Paul is exhorting the church to do. Try to understand the unknowable love of God. Try to experience it. He's pushing us toward that. He's exhorting us to plummet's depths, to gaze upon the glory of God in the gospel, to let it warm our hearts again and again and experience it, resurrecting our ever-dying affections, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take it and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I need you to bring my heart back to life because my affections die within minutes of walking out of a church on Sunday. My affections die within seconds of doing CBR. I have this moment, I'm crying my eyes out, and I'm feeling your presence, I'm feeling your love, and then there's that thing. That person cuts me off, and it's gone. (laughs) Paul's exhorting us to do that. And yes, the dimensions of his love are infinite. But yeah, we can start looking at them in the places that we see. John Stott says it this way. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. Long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Paul's prayer for us, listen, right now for you, Paul's prayer is that you would know experientially, intimately, passionately, emotionally, not just with your head, but with your heart, the love of Christ so that you could be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's, I don't even know what that means. What's that mean to be filled with the fullness of God? most commentators tend to point to in this is, is, is the characteristics of God. When you think about God, what are some of his characteristics? Just fire them at me real quick. What are, what's a characteristic of God that stands out to you? He's good. What's it mean for me to be so full of God that I start to display that goodness in my life? He's just. What's it mean for me to live a life so full of God that I bring that justice into the world around me? Somebody said love. What's it mean for me to love others as Christ loved me when I was far from him? He's gracious. What's it mean to be forgiving? Be gracious like God. Not based on what somebody did, not based on how well they apologized or made up for it and atoned for their sin against me. He's compassionate, taking care of the needs around him. What's it mean for me to be so full of the fullness of God by the experience of his love in my innermost part and in community that that's all I have to give to the world around me. That I'm filled up with the fullness of God. He's merciful. And we could keep going, right? That God would dwell within filling us so fully and profoundly with himself that we'd actually not just be called new creations, but we'd start to look like it. It starts to look more and more like our dad. And maybe some of you are like, oh, it sounds great. I've heard a lot of sermons on that idea, but why hasn't it happened yet? Because as I sit here today, I hear pretty words, I hear these cool ideas, but to be honest, I'm still struggling with the same stuff. More often than not, I go through my day full of negative emotions. I'm still battling the same addictions. I'm still frustrated. I can barely, barely keep myself coming to church, coming to community, and getting around people. I feel like I'm a worn-out water pump with no water flowing through it. I'm just grinding down my gears, and I'm burning out and closing two things. First of all, remember, it's not your work. It's his from start to finish. You can't do it. That's why Paul prays for you to be strengthened with God's power in your innermost part by his spirit. If what Ephesians says is true and it's all God's work from start to finish, then just receive God's work and let him change you. Philippians says 
that, remember that place in Philippians where it says that it, uh, it is he that is at work in you both to desire and to do his good pleasure? If you even want to do God's good pleasure, that means that it's God putting that desire in you. And he's going to give you the power to do it. And it says elsewhere in Philippians that he that began a good work in you, what? Will complete it. So not only can you have faith that God put that desire in you and that he's going to be able to do it in you, but that he's going to complete the work he started. Trust him. It's his work from start to finish. You say, I'm weak. I'm tired. I don't know what to do. Stop doing it. <laughs> what did God tell Moses as he stood on the shore of the Red Sea with the Egyptians behind him, closing in and mountains on either side. Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Some of us need to do that today. Some of us, it's not even about what we do. We just need to receive God's work. Look at Paul's example. Paul reflects upon the gospel. He pauses, he prays, he climbs down upon his knees. And I think the whole point of this is that Paul's not the only one who ever climbed down on his knees. I remember there's another place in scripture where someone else climbed down on their knees in passionate prayer. And in the garden, he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then he climbed up on a cross. And he took the cup of wrath that we deserved so that we could have the love he deserved. And he was separated from his father so that we could be reconciled to his father. And his prayer was ignored and his request was not granted so that we could come boldly before God and we could have our requests heard and answered. When I think about that phrase, the height and the depth and the width and the length of his love, I'm reminded of the cross and his body stretched out in those four directions, which pointed that Jesus on the cross arms open, bloody, and breathing heavy breaths and stretched beyond bearing on the cross, Jesus showed us the extravagant dimensions of God's love. How far would God go to have you? The cross shows us. Jesus is the reason Paul can even pray this prayer. And when you think of what he was willing to go through to have you, how he spilled his blood, how he gave his spirit, how he died, doesn't that as you sit here, is that just old news or does that fill your heart with passion? Is that just head knowledge or does that start hitting you deep within your heart? Does this still stir your affections and swell your heart with love and worship? I want to challenge you to just let the glorious truth of God's work for you in the gospel warm your heart and bring you back to life right now. And two, in closing, because I don't have time for it, let's just listen to this benediction from Paul, this, this doxology. And if you have doubts, if you have fears, if you're afraid that everything is just going to keep going on the same, there's a chance that today, right now, you can encounter the living God in this place and things can be different. That this truth doesn't just have to stay at a head level. It can get in your heart. It can transform your life. Listen to this. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. What do you want for him to do for you right now? He's able. 
There's nothing too hard for God. Let's stand and close our eyes and bow our heads. I'm going to close. And listen, I don't just want this to be just another closing today. Um, we're going to take communion. We're going to pray for each other. But I want to I do something a little different, if that's okay. I want to pray for what Paul prays for over us. And if there are any of you right now who are hungry for more of God, you want for Christ not to just dwell in your heart in the sense that he lives there, but you want for him to swell in your heart. You want for the fullness of God to fill your life. If you want that today, I want to give you the opportunity to come down and get prayed for. I'm going to ask the prayer team to actually come up front. Um, and just every, every head bow, every eyes closed, except for the prayer team who's walking. God is at work with all his power to give you strength to experience the reality personally in community to know the love that's unknowable and yours for the taking and to be full with all the fullness of God. And maybe you've struggled to believe that Jesus has stayed with you because you look and all you can see when you look through your rearview mirror is the filter on that rearview mirror of everything you've ever done that you're ashamed of. Or maybe you've had difficulty allowing your faith to be heart level and it's just been intellectual faith and you want it to get down in your heart today. You want to reflect upon the gospel in such a way that brings you to life. Or maybe the only emotions you felt lately are negative, depression, anxiety, fear. Maybe in your faith you've been stuck and dry and tired and burnt out. Maybe you don't even have enough faith for yourself, but you want somebody else to, you want to borrow their faith, as it were. Like the man who didn't even have faith for himself, but his four friends led him to Jesus and tore the roof off and lowered him down. And it says Jesus saw their faith and healed him. Maybe you need somebody else to have faith for you today. What you need today is an experience of God's love. And I know that in a church that's heavy on doctrine like ours, and we tend toward intellectualism. To pray for an experience of God to love seems on the fringe, on the border, but Paul prays for it, and I'm gonna boldly pray for it today that some of you would experience it for the first time or, or like it's the first time. And if you wanna experience God's love for you today, I just want you, again, every head bow, every eyes closed, will you just raise, raise your hand? I'm not gonna try to embarrass you. For those of you that have the wherewithal, I would love for you to come down and get prayed for right here in the front. And for those of you who don't have your hand raised, I want you to pray for them. Maybe some of you feel led. You'll feel led to come down and put your hand on somebody's shoulder carefully and pray for them. But we're gonna just pause and pray here as a church family and allow the spirit of what Paul is saying to overwhelm us, that God loves us that he's leveraged all of the power of the universe to make that known to us, even though it's unknowable. And that's my prayer for us right now. So if the prayer team will come down, we're gonna sing a couple songs. We're gonna take time to respond. If you wanna take communion, it's right over here.
If you want to hang back in your seat, you can. But if you want to come down right here in the front and get prayed for, we would love to pray for you. And I'm just going to say a prayer over us all. And as I pray, would you just come? Father, your love is far beyond anything we can ever hope to grasp. And yet you told us to reach out and to explore it. You gave us the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, the, the force that created all the universe. The third person in the Trinity is dwelling within my heart right now to make known the love of God for us in the face of our failures, in the face of our fears, in the face of everything that we are facing. Your love is greater. The love of God is stronger than the power of death. And I pray that you would move in this place right now Move in the lives of people who are tired and broken by life and dry and don't know where else to turn. Make yourself known in this place to hearts and lives, Jesus, by your grace for your glory. Have your way in these next few minutes as we sing and pray and respond. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's pray. If you will, just come down, get prayed for, come down and help us pray for these people. Father, thank you so much.